Good morning. Good morning. And uh, before we get started, I just want to remind you of the fundamental focus pamphlets we have uh, to share with our friends. If it says the number 28 on the front, that's uh, actually uh, focusing on the 28 fundamental beliefs of the Adventist church, and you give it to your Adventist friends. If it doesn't say 28 on the front, then it's actually just uh, written for any uh, Christian background, and it's uh, focusing on God's character of love. So we've got plenty of those out there in the lobby for you all to share with others. Let's go ahead and uh, begin with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that you will join us this uh, this morning with your uh, presence and your spirit. Fill our hearts with your love. Give us discernment and wisdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number nine in our quarterly First and Second Thessalonians. And the title of the lesson this week is Final Events. Final Events. And this week we are tackling what many find to be a very troubling topic. How do we reconcile the idea that God is love with judgment and punishment for sin. Can we be honest with the Bible text and retain a loving God? How can we understand the references that suggest God punishes and the judgment without inciting fear of God? These are some questions as we go through today. Does the Bible speak of fear? Yes. But according to the Bible, from where does fear originate in the garden of eden from where from what what is the source of fear sin itself that's exactly right do you notice that that according to scripture as soon as they sinned they ran and hid because they were afraid the fear was inherent in the deviation from god's design yet many teach that we should be afraid of god And the fear that we experience, rather than being afraid of the sin that is destroying us, too many live their lives in fear of God, believing he is going to punish them. And so we come up with theologies that are designed to address the fear that we have in God. This week also, the lesson provides a great example of how when we accept a distortion of God's law to be an imposed law like Rome, then we read into the Bible things that are not actually in the Bible. And so the lesson this week is focusing us, if you notice, on 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. So I thought it best uh, that we actually read that together. So open your scripture to 1 Thessalonians 5, and we're going to read that. And I just want you to, to have a, in your, as a base what the scripture actually says. So when we look at what is inferred, we'll know what's actually there. So this is what it says. Now, brothers, about times and dates we do not... I need to write you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who asleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as the breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing." This is the passage that we're to study. And with that in mind, let's jump over to Sunday's lesson and look at the first paragraph. The first paragraph says this. 
Though the specific word judgment does not occur in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11, the passage is very much concerned with it. Paul wants the believers in Thessalonica to be aware that God's judgment is not limited to something that happens in heaven at the end of time, but that it must, but it has real consequences in their everyday lives. Did you hear anything about judgment in what we read? This is, you see, somehow there's this idea that Paul was talking about judgment. But I didn't read that in what we read. Why do you think this has happened? Why is it some will read that passage and and hear judgment? What do you think may be the reasons for that? Any thoughts? Um, pardon? A bias. A bias, yes. Um, Margaret was telling me that she was watching the Hope Channel and uh, was watching a couple of theologians talk, and one of them, I'm not going to name who it was, was um, uh, 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 talking about how they believe that God must use his power to take vengeance and torment and kill the wicked, and if they didn't believe that, they would have no hope. Now, why is it they believe that? And I can tell you why they believe that. I think What I think is the underlying premise. The underlying premise is this. If you believe God's law is like Rome, imposed upon creatures by the ruling authority, then if you break that law, if God does not inflict punishment, there's no justice in the universe. There is a capricious universe. Nobody's held accountable. And so if you believe the idea that God's law is imposed, then God has to punish or there's no justice. And so the error comes in believing this idea about God's law. The, the lesson mentioned, I mean, the scripture mentioned something about God's wrath. Yes, you were going to ask a question. What were you going to say? I was going to say later it says about God's wrath. And so that leads us to think that we have to escape God's wrath, which is judgment. Okay, did you hear what she said? Because the scripture said about escaping God's wrath that it leads us to think about escaping his, what would you call his wrath, his judgment? She, she used those words. Um, what does the Bible teach us that God's wrath actually is? We let the Bible teach us. Letting. Do you have any reference for that? Romans 1. Romans 1. Starting in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. The wrath of God is being revealed. Active present tense. Today it's happening. And then he goes on in verse 24, 26, and 28 to say, Therefore, God gave them up. He let them go. Three times. So we have it right from Scripture, but this is a, a book, I'm going to get to you in just a second, I want to bring this thought about God's wrath. This is uh, from Hard Sayings of the Bible, um, which is um, published by InterVarsity Press, commenting on God's wrath in Scripture, and particularly they're going to comment on Romans 1, 18-32. In some sense, God's wrath is built into the very structure of created reality. In rejecting God's structure and establishing our own, in violating God's intention for the creation and substituting our own intention, we cause our own disintegration. The human condition Paul describes in Romans 1, 18-32 is not something caused by God. The phrase revealed from heaven, where heaven is a typical Jewish substitute for the word God, does not depict some kind of divine intervention, but rather the inevitability of human debasement, which results when God's will built into the created order, is violated. Since the created order has its origin origin in God, Paul can say that the wrath of God is now constantly being revealed from heaven. 
It is revealed in the fact that the rejection of God's truth, that is, the truth about God's nature and will, notice, these guys, these guys, uh, uh, these are not Adventist theologians. These are uh, evangelical theologians. They're writing this. But notice what they, know, what they see in rejecting the truth about God's nature and will. Leads to futile thinking, idolatry, perversion of God-intended sexuality, and relational moral brokenness. The expression God gave them over or handed them over, which appears three times in this passage, supports the idea that sinful perversion of, of human existence though resulting from human decisions, is to be understood ultimately as God's punishment, which we in freedom bring upon ourselves. Last paragraph. In light of these reflections, the common notion that God punishes or blesses in direct proportion to our sinful or good deeds cannot be maintained. God's love, God loves us with an everlasting love, but the rejection of that love separates us from its living power. The result is disintegration and death. Isn't that great? It's beautifully said. How come we miss it? What's gone wrong? Okay, you had your hand up. Well, you know, in in discussing this uh, in settings, people will often say, you know, how could so many people misunderstand this? I mean, how could people... Why would Why would you think differently about this? Because it's right there in the Bible. But I think we have to really... Think about the power of suggestion that we've all been subjected to for all of our lives. Like even when they take people that have witnessed an accident, they actually witnessed it. But they can make suggestions to them like, you know, was there a lot of broken glass? Well, then they remember things that never occurred because that was suggested to them. There are things that when we go to read a passage because a certain concept, a certain ideology has been so strongly implanted in our mind, we automatically read it in there when it's not in the text. And I think it's a very important thing that we try to let go of all of the baggage we brought to something. I'm going to tell you, it's been very clarifying for me in the last few years to see God's law and contrasted with human imperial imposed law. That is, seems to me, always seems to be a dividing line that, that helps break through and, and give discernment to some of these things. Um, and we've talked about this in here before. One of the founders, this idea of wrath and what it is, what our church taught a hundred and some years ago versus what we read in our quarterly, this is what was written a hundred and some years ago. First Selected Messages 235. And remember, we just read out of the evangelical book that we read. This is First Selected Messages 235. We're not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for its sin, for a sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Doesn't that sound just like disintegration, cutting yourself off from it? I mean, the same concept expressed in, in, in when our church was being founded in the 1880s. Did we, have we lost something? Yeah, what's happened? But some, and I've, have you had this conversation? Has anybody tried to have this conversation with somebody? <laughs> have, you, have, you, as if they have, have they thrown revelation at you? The plagues, the cup of wrath, God, uh, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Have they thrown these passages at you? The iniquity, the cup of iniquity is full and, and, and the day of, a day of vengeance and judgment is coming. Have they thrown these passages? And then the plagues in Revelation. What do you say to those who throw those passages at you? Self-inflicted. I agree with you, self-inflicted. Um, 
I'm going to just tell you what our church taught more than 100 years ago. I want to read a passage to you. This is out of Review and Herald, 1901. And I want you to listen to words like, you know, vengeance and cup of iniquity and, and these types of language that we often get thrown at us. God bears long with the rebellious and the rebellion and apostasy of his subjects. Even when his mercy is despised and his love scorned and derided, he bears with them, with men until the last resource for leading them to repentance is exhausted. I'm going to pause there. He bears with them until when? The last resource resource to bring them to repentance is exhausted. So why does he stop bearing with them? There's nothing more he can do. There is nothing left to reach those people. And I'm going to suggest to you that's because as as we persist in sin, we read the passage earlier, we actually sear our conscience, as the Bible says. We warp our characters. We darken our minds. It becomes harder and harder to appreciate truth. Our hearts become callous. Love has less and less impact upon us. And if we persist on that pathway long enough, truth and love have no impact on us at all. And there's nothing left for God to reach us with because we don't respond to truth and love anymore. So he continues until the last resource is exhausted, but there are limits to his forbearance. What do you think those limits are? There you go, our ability to respond. From those, from those who to the end continue in obstinate rebellion, he removes his protecting care. Providence will no longer shield them from Satan's power. They will have sinned away their day of grace. God keeps a reckoning with the nations. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without his notice. Those who work evil toward their fellow man, saying, how does God know, will one day be called upon to meet long-deferred vengeance. In this age, a, a more than common contempt is shown for God. Men have reached a point in insolence and disobedience, which shows that their cup of iniquity is almost full. Many have well nigh passed the boundaries of mercy. Soon God will show that he is indeed a living God. He will say to his angels, Get this, because you hear the context of all the language being used. He will say to his angels, no longer combat Satan in his efforts to destroy. Let him work out his malignity upon the children of disobedience, for the cup of their iniquity is full. They have advanced from one degree of wickedness to another, adding daily to their lawlessness. I will no longer interfere to prevent the destroyer from doing his work. Then I give you chills? Have you, have, this has been shared with you many, many times in your upbringing in the church, right? You see how it gets buried. Somehow we, we, we have forgotten our roots. The message about God's character of love. Why is it that God doesn't have to use his power to inflict pain and suffering on those who violate his law? Why is it he doesn't have to do it? The natural consequences. She says the natural consequences, meaning, give me some examples. Do you have to inflict punishment on somebody who decides to jump off the Empire State Building? No. Natural. Do you have to inflict punishment on uh, uh, people who stop brushing their teeth because they're breaking the law of thermodynamics and mom told them to do it and they won't do it? Do you have to inflict punishment on, do you have to inflict punishment on people who smoke? No. Drink heavily. Do drugs. Somebody who... Uh, decides to tie a plastic bag over their head and break the law of respiration, you have to inflict punishment on them. No. Every one of these examples, when you understand God's law is the protocol upon which he built life, and you deviate from that protocol, life cannot continue. This is why the wages of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. And this is why God is interceding to restore man back into harmony. And I'm going to suggest to you, guys, it's very real. 
God's intercessions into your heart and mind. These are not this legal intercession going on up in a building in heaven where record books are being reviewed and forgiveness is being stamped by names. No, the intercession is, I will write my law in your heart and mind. I will give you a new heart and a right spirit. I'll take the heart of stone out and put a heart of flesh in. There's a real transforming, regenerating, renewing thing that is to be happening in us that is literal, real. So that when he comes, the scripture says, we will see him face to face for we shall be like him. How are we going to be like him except something's changed in us? And I'm going to tell you this other, this other message sends a message that we don't get changed, we get pardoned. There's a difference between pardoned and being healed. They're not the same. Here's another one from a hundred years ago. If somebody pulls the plagues on you, well, what about the plagues? The Bible says he, that the angel comes out with the, with the vials of wrath. Manuscript release, volume 14, page 3. I was shown that the judgments of God, and we're talking about judgment, the judgments of God, would not come out directly from the Lord upon them, but in this way. They place themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path of safety. Then, if those who have been the objects of his special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God, after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission his angels to prevent Satan's decided attack upon them. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, bringing calamity and distress and sweeping off multitudes to make sure of his prey. And storm and tempest, both by sea and land, will be, for Satan has come down with great wrath. He is at work. He knows his time is short, and he is not restrained. We shall see more terrible manifestations of the great power, his great power, than we have ever dreamed. Well, does this not remind you of Revelation 7? An angel coming from the east saying to the angels who had been given power to harm the land and the trees... Hold, hold, hold until the servants of God are sealed in their forehead. Now, notice what they're doing. They're actively doing what? Holding, holding but they've been given power to harm the land and the sea. So how is it they harm the land and the sea? By letting go and stop interceding with Satan's powers. This is what happens. It's phenomenal. You see, we can, we can be afraid of sin which is destroying us. But if we're afraid of God who's trying to save us, then we're running from the only one who has the power to heal and set us free. And this is Satan's grand lie. He wants to teach us that God is out to punish, that God is out to exact vengeance, that that God is a God of love, but if you don't want to do what he says, he's going to torment you and torture you. The, The second paragraph in Sunday's lesson says, many people today are uncomfortable with the theme of judgment. They don't like the implications of negativity and threat. But the Bible, the biblical concept of judgment is broader than just threat, condemnation, and execution. You notice they're not saying it's not about threat, condemnation, and execution. They're saying it's broader than that. That, That's what judgment's about. God is threatening you, he's going to condemn you, and he's going to execute you. But it's more than that, too. There's also a positive side to judgment. Simply everyday actions of mercy and kindness do not go unnoticed or unrewarded. God sees everything we do, whether positive or negative, and it all has meaning in the ultimate scheme of things. So what do you hear being described? What kind of God is being described here right now? Really talk to me. An accountant. An accountant. How many remember children's story? Where the angel with her little record book is keeping track of all the things you do. 
How many have seen the scales of justice and, and the depictions in various, uh, in various ways of, of the good is being weighed against the bad in our accounts in heaven? You know, he's judging us, weighing the good and the bad. Yes. I hear God that operates in stage three or four of the, uh, the moral, development. moral development stages. Exactly. You notice if you do good, he's going to keep a record of that, and he will, from heaven, hand out rewards, candy to the good people, gold medals. And from heaven to the bad people, he will hand out punishments and suffering and torture and torment. It's a heavenly Santa Claus. I mean, it's a, that's, that's the whole concept. Is this a, it's, if this is how God is, do you tr- does this draw you to him? Does it make you feel safe around him? Do you feel pressure on, that you're being scrutinized? Remember we gave the analogy before of driving and having a police officer pulling behind you and follow you everywhere you go? And as the police officer is following you, do you relax more or get more stressed? Okay, well, some, this concept, God is following you everywhere to keep an account. Does it make you feel peaceful? I like much better the idea of, you know, Lance Armstrong in the Tour de France had a car following him everywhere. Everywhere he went on that bike, he had a car right behind him. For what purpose? If he fell, if he got a flat tire, if he broke, they were there to pick him up, patch him up, and put him back on the road. God is following us to pick us up, patch us up, and put us back on the road to life. He's not there to keep this accounting thing going. So how do we understand then judgment? Let's talk about it. How do we understand judgment? What is judgment? And, and there, there's various constructs here, so we can have more than one. So first, it's an ability. We have the ability, we have the, the ability of judgment to draw conclusions, to discern, to weigh out the things, to come to conclusions, to choose the right from the wrong. We have the ability of judgment. Does God have that ability? Sure. So first, judgment is an ability. Yes. But from the very beginning, we've always said that it is God's judgment and the hour of his judgment has come. Judging God, the universe. Yes. And so, uh, Revelation chapter 14, uh, the third angel's message, first of the third. Um, um, fear God, fear God, and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Now, the word fear, God, and give glory to him. What does it mean? How do you know? How does he know you're not supposed to be afraid? Because he's about to judge. You better be afraid. He's about to judge. You better be afraid. Because you can't truly give glory if you're afraid. There you go. See, the people who are to fear are described as giving glory to God. Well, what does God's love, what does the Bible say about God's love in the heart? It casts out all fear. So this can't be fear, dread, terror, apprehension. This is awe, admiration, adoration. Yes, Wendell. It talks about the good news or the gospel. And the gospel. You know, and so they... With an everlasting gospel, yes. Yeah. The everlasting good news, and the everlasting good news is not about something that is fearful. That, that, thank you, because I, I cut in the middle of the, the passage. The first angel comes with the, with the eternal gospel saying. That's right. Thank you, Wendell. Right, and the eternal good news, it depends on how you understand God's law. You ask many Christians, what's, what's the gospel? What's the good news? And what do they tell you? Jesus paid the price so that I could be saved. He paid my penalty. He went on to death row so I don't have to. 
And why do they say that? Because they believe God's law is like Rome, and God is the supreme emperor who imposes punishments. And, and he had, in order to be just, to punish the sinner. And so Jesus stood in that place and took our punishment. Boy, that's the good news. It's horrible news. I'm going to tell you straight up, it's pagan. It's pagan. The good news is God is just like Jesus revealed him to be. He is the God of love who never changes. And when man sinned, God did not get changed. When man sinned, God's law did not get changed. When man sinned, man got changed. And Christ came to put man back in harmony with God and his law. He didn't come to do anything to God. That's why the scriptures, if you read them widely, will say, for God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. If you see me, you've seen the Father. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. You see this harmony between the Godhead working together to work out their plan. Christ was God's vehicle, if you will. His, his, if you want to even use the word tool in the hand of God to work out his will on earth to save us. That's what he was doing. Everything he said, I don't do anything of myself. I only do what the father tells me to do. I'm not doing my own business here. I'm doing the father's business here. Judgment is an ability and God has perfect Ability. God has perfect judgment, which means he judges, estimates, or diagnoses all things exactly as they really are. Now, question for you about God's judgment then, his, his ability to make judgments. Does God's judgments, his assessment of what actually is, cause reality to be as it is? Or do his judgments simply perfectly assess what actually is? This is a big difference. See, when we think in the imposed law construct, we take our case before the judge, we have the arguments, and the judge makes a determination, which is the right. God's judgment is simply about accurately describing, diagnosing, assessing what actually is. It is what it is. When God judges Satan as beyond healing, Does God's judgment cause it to be this way? Or does God's judgment assess and accurately conclude that it is this way? Assess. There's a big difference, isn't there? Huge difference. See, if it's God determining your destiny versus God is simply accurately concluding what your condition is, which gives you greater trust in God? Which causes you greater fear? And then second, judgment is an act. Whether judicial or medicinal, judgment is an act. And God does make interventions based on his judgments. But God's interventions are always therapeutic and beneficial for the healing and restoring of his creation. Unfortunately, if one looks through that false law construct, one reads it as punishment and fails to see the healing intervention. I'm going to show you. Look at the uh, third paragraph in our Sunday lesson. And look at this. It says, The two-sided nature of judgment is evident in the earliest narratives of the Bible. In Garden of Eden, God judges the sin of Adam and Eve negatively. There are consequences of sin in relation to childbirth, farming, and where they were allowed to live. At the same time, God judges them positively. He creates enmity between them and Satan and mercifully clothes them with skins so they will not suffer unduly in the changed, changing environment. Even more important, those skins symbolize the righteousness of Christ that will cover their sin as well. The lesson, if you'll notice, uses in the same context, the same paragraph, judgment and consequences. Do you hear judgment and consequences as the same? 
when the two are used together, then it could have a diverse meaning. It could mean um, the consequence is going to be that you go before the judge and receive your punishment. The consequence for breaking the law is you get caught by the ruling authority, you go before the judge and receive your punishment. That's what it could mean. That's your consequence. Or it could mean that the judge assesses accurately the consequence that results from one's choice. It could be either way when you use these together. Which do you think they mean here? Well, think it through with me. Which, I'm going to let you to draw your own conclusion. What did God already tell Adam and Eve was the punishment for sin? You shall surely die. You shall surely die. This is the punishment for sin. So is pain in childbirth, difficulty in farming, and also uh, a, a, a woman being subordinate to her husband, is any of that God's judgment and punishment for sin? As a result of sin. Yeah, but it's not judgment and punishment, is it? No. Weren't they, weren't some of these interventions to stem the tide of the sin? Weren't they, weren't they designed to slow it down? See, if you, if you view it as God's design template, then God is intervening to, to uh, intercede, to hold back the consequences of sin for salvation. If you intervene, see it as Rome, then God is imposing so that unpunished rebellion doesn't go on. And he has to punish to make sure that stopped. Yes. There's a really cool advertisement on the radio in Atlanta right now for a weight loss program, and this guy comes on and he says, I went to see my doctor, and my doctor said, Eric, we are either going to manage the slow decline and disintegration of your life, or we're going to make some changes. And I think that's exactly what God's judgment is. We're either going to, I'm either going to help you manage the slow disintegration and decline of your life, or... We have to make some changes. And that's the way his judgment works. Do you all agree with that? I think it said, well, well said. I think that's exactly right. Um, after Adam and Eve sinned, humanity no longer automatically sought to love one another, did they? What was their driving motive now? You see it instantly when God came. Adam's first words basically were, it wasn't me. It was the woman. Yeah. Thro- immediately throwing Eve under the bus. Sacrificing her to protect himself. Self first. Protect self rather than sacrifice self. The motive of the heart got changed when mankind sinned. We're no longer operating in selfless love. We're operating in survival of the fittest mode. Watch out for me. Which is driven by fear. Fear of what's going to happen to us. And God describes how women being the weaker would be dominated by men because of sin, not because of God. Men dominate women because not because it's godly, but because of fear, insecurity, and selfishness in the heart of the men who do so. Just letting that hang out there. Does that apply to ordination as well? Yes. In my view. Yes. As we experience God's healing power in our lives, as selfishness is purged and love is restored within the marriage relationship and human relationships, we become more and more back into God's true ideal, equality of the intelligent beings. And as Christ himself said, when they asked him about marriage, who will be given in marriage and blah, blah, in heaven, we will be like the angels. There'll be equality. There isn't one over the other. We'll have equality. 
Each partner sacrificing and lifting up the other because they love the other more than self. So you think that's relating to how men, men and women will relate to each other rather than the whole concept of marriage? I didn't say that. <laughs> the pain of childbirth. <laughs> the pain of childbirth is an object lesson, a powerful object lesson, allowing the men to observe, but the women to experience greater insight into the heart and mind of God, knowing, knowing labor will be painful. Why would a woman ever choose to go through it? I mean, men, you look at that and you go, what are they thinking? <laughs> why would you do that? Okay, and why do they do it? It's love. It's for love. Love is the motivator. Uh, love, lo- love overcomes their fear of the labor pain, and they want to bring forth new life. Likewise, the Bible says in Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. It was for our, re- our rebirth that Christ labored as a human and suffered through the cross. Thus, the birthing process allows a woman to appreciate in a small way the pain and suffering God went through to rebirth us in newness of life and also the joy in God's heart when he sees us reborn and renewed. Therefore, Genesis 3.16 does not reveal God punishing mankind for sin, but God diagnosing and describing how life will be because of sin. Genesis 3.17, about the, well, you will you know, scratch out your living in the earth, basically, God looks out, um, God, uh, God looks really good if you view him through the lens of the law of love. Because what is he doing in verse 317? He's pronouncing the natural consequences of how sin has damaged his creation. That Paul, as Paul says in Romans 8.22, all nature groans under the weight of sin. God is announcing in Genesis 3.17 that for mankind's sake, he would not intervene to prevent the law of sin and death from impacting earth. But the earth was now under the curse of sin. Why would God allow this? How is that for our benefit? How does that help us? How is this good for us? As a protection in a world of sin, once Adam and Eve sinned, their natural tendency was towards selfishness and self-indulgement, industry, work, is a hedge of protection from the power of our carnal nature. Maybe you've heard the old saying, idle hands, the devil's workshop. You heard that? I can tell you it's true. Have you ever had idleness in your life? And what does your mind start doing? So God has given us work to help us because he knew that we would be tempted. And prior to the flood, before the, it was easier before the flood than after. They didn't have to work as hard and what did the world become even, even then? It became terribly degraded because of self-indulgence. Further, there's a powerful spiritual lesson in allowing the curse of sin to change the earth for man's sake. Imagine you have a garden, you've been working, and I know some of you work gardens, and uh, it's producing a bountiful harvest, and you walk away and leave that garden for five or ten years and do nothing with it and come back those years later. You expect to have a bountiful harvest still there waiting for you? No way. Weeds come up. Weeds really come up in your garden? Do they? Yeah, and who planted those weeds? Do you, ha- do you have to plant the weeds? No. Or do they come up by themselves? Do you have to plant the good seed? Yes. You see, our hearts and minds are like the earth now. The earth on its own brings up the weeds. 
Our hearts and minds on their own bring up selfishness and distorted concepts and evil thoughts and desires. This is the natural way of the heart. And the good seed must be planted in. This is the parable of the, of the sower. And the good seed has to be fertilized. And, and we have to pay attention to our mind. We have to pull the little weeds of temptation when they're small and a little sprout comes up in your garden. It's this big of a weed. It's easy to pull out. If you let it take root and get six feet tall, it pulls up a lot of good stuff with it when you pull it out. In our lives, as we let sin take hold and we get addiction problems, other things that get deep, root, root deeply into our characters, they can still be pulled out, but they're much harder to pull out. This is an object lesson. And it does more damage when we pull them out. Yes. We also see the two two warring um, governments in nature. You see Satan's law of sin and selfishness and God's law of of love. Absolutely. I mean, there there are literally cosmic realities that that we can observe because God allowed sin to infect nature. Exactly. Well said. Yeah, exactly right. So then what about this other concept of judgment? So we see in Genesis, looking through the lens of God's design protocols, God's character of love, that God, in fact, did not act judiciously and inflict imposed penalties upon them, but was acting in mercy and in love to to put a hedge of protection for healing and restoration. Then what about this idea of judicial judgment? What determines the outcome of one's life? Many point to scriptures, great white throne judgment. We will all, Paul, we will all one day sit before the judgment seat, stand before the judgment seat of God. You know, you know these passages, right? To conclude that God, in fact, one day will have a courtroom scene in which you will stand before the heavenly judge and be judged. Here's what our church taught more than 100 years ago. See if you agree or disagree with this. This is out of a book called Desire of Ages, uh, 468. They thought themselves passing judgment on Christ. But in rejecting him, they were pronouncing sentence upon themselves. He that is of God, Jesus said, heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. The lesson is true for all time. Many, a man who delights to quibble, to criticize, seeking for something to question in the word of God, thinks he is thereby giving evidence of his independent thought and mental acuteness. He supposes that he is sitting in judgment on the Bible, when in truth he is judging himself. He makes it manifest that he is incapable of appreciating truth that originates in heaven and that that compass eternity. And then, Zarvages 475, one more paragraph. The people who beheld the Savior... At his advent were favored with a fuller manifestation of the divine presence than the world had ever enjoyed before. The knowledge of God was revealed more perfectly, but in this very revelation, judgment was passing upon men. Their character was tested, their destiny determined. What do you hear happening here? What do you hear happening? What do you hear judgment to be? Who's judging? Remember what Jesus said? By your words, you will be judged or condemned. By your very words. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good of the good stored up in him. The evil man brings forth evil of the evil stored up in him. What he's saying is that at the great judgment, it's the great diagnosis day. God is simply diagnosing the actual condition that you are in. You either are renewed in heart 
have been regenerated in spirit, have a, uh, the law written upon you, love others more than selves, or you're solidified in selfishness. It's one or the other. Your condition is what your condition is. Will that judgment be a surprise to anyone? She says, will that judgment be a surprise to anyone? What do you think? I think it'll be a surprise to many people who don't believe there's a God. Whoa, there really is a God? Whoa. Hey, uh, can I get a redo? <laughs> if you're distracted, you're not paying attention to what reality truly is. If you're distracted, you're not. Yeah, exactly. And so the, we get in the busyness of the world and we get distracted, don't we? So based on what we've talked about, what or who determines your destiny? How, and specifically, how we respond to the truth of God's character and law of love. That's it. How do you respond to that? Do you embrace it? Do you open your heart to it? Does the Spirit come in? Do you love His methods? Do you want to practice them? Do you choose Him? Do you alienate, reject, hold to the worldly ways? Bottom paragraph, excuse me, bottom green section says the following. How does the truth of Christ as our substitute in the judgment make the judgment positive for us? What does the question itself reveal? Misunderstanding about God, preconceived notion. Think it through with me. If you are in a judicial system and you are guilty, and you can have an innocent person that is known to be innocent stand in your place and be judged instead of you, this would sound like a really cool thing to have happen. Don't judge me, judge Jesus in my place. Well, Jesus gets judged innocent every time. He gets judged perfect every time. Jesus was innocent. Jesus was perfect. Jesus made no mistakes. And I have no questions that God will always conclude that Jesus was innocent and perfect every time. And if, and if you believe that's what God is going to do to you, then that makes a lot of sense to give you a sense of security. I don't have to worry about God looking at me because he's going to... But how about this? You're really sick. You've got a terrible, terrible illness. You're, you're, you're hurting. You're, you're, you can't eat. You're nauseated. You're vomiting. You've got pain. You know something's terribly wrong. So you go to the doctor. And the doctor comes in to examine you, and as soon as he does, you shove your perfectly healthy brother in front of you and say, hey, examine him in my place, and whatever you find, put in my medical record. <laughs> do, do, does that sound as good to you? No. Why, why not? You'll have a perfect record. You'll be, re- you'll be recorded as being perfectly healthy. But you're not changed. This is the lie of this view. That gives people false security into thinking that they have a perfect counting in heaven when they haven't been changed, which, which we want to pray is what David prayed. Father, search me and see the wicked way in me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You see, when you know God is there to heal you and restore you, you don't want somebody hiding your defects from God. You want God to find every defect he possibly can because when he finds them, he'll fix them. That's what you want, yes. It seems to me that, that seeing God um, as this imposed law, I mean, if you read it just like it is, if God hadn't been so negative, we wouldn't have a problem. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. I had an email exchange with Brad Cole this week. Everybody know Brad? Neurologist, hello, Melinda. Uh, great. Uh, if you haven't been to his website, godscharacter.com recently, Dean just rebuilt their website. It's amazing. Visit. It's got tons of awesome resources there. Um, really good in-depth thinking materials that show God and his right character. I encourage you to re- uh, visit there, godscharacter.com. But we were, we were having an email exchange this week, and we were discussing the origin of the legal model of atonement. The origin of the legal model of atonement. 
And I suggested that the legal model is not biblical at all, but inspired by Satan. And another friend pointed out, wait a minute now, God used a lot of law at Sinai. And he gave all these laws, and this is the origin of the legal model when God gave law at Sinai. And I responded by saying, the law given at Sinai was not given as a model of atonement. It was given as a therapeutic intervention to protect, to diagnose, and to begin restoring these people back to God's ideal. Just as when parents give rules to unruly kids, those rules aren't given as a model of atonement. They're given redemptively to save and to heal. The model that they were given of atonement at Sinai was the sanctuary. That was the model of atonement, and it's about healing and restoration. So Brad responded, this is his email, he responded with this. The legal model ultimately was inspired by the adversary to, one, paint God in an arbitrary light, two, blind us to the reality of natural consequences from breaking the law of love as opposed to impose penalties for breaking an arbitrary rule, and three, blind us to what God really wants to accomplish, which is healing, and to keep us fixated on a legal fix that has no transforming power. I think it's well said. And we are infected in Christianity with this idea that keeps people in a false security. And Christ said, because, I'm, I'm pushing this today, guys, because I want to see the Lord come. And, and the Bible says, Christ said, when the gospel of the kingdom goes to the entire world as a witness to all nations, the end will come. This gospel has not gone to the world. What we have taken to the world is a legal penal model with a punitive God that looks like a Roman emperor waiting to take vengeance upon his creatures and we need Jesus there to plead to our behalf to, to keep his wrath from striking out. That's what's gone to the world. And we have an opportunity to take a different message. <clears throat> yes, Kathy. I think this <clears throat> thing also diminishes God. Not mm. only does it make it a, make us afraid of God, but it also says we don't really have complete faith that God can heal us and change us back to the way we were. So we have to have a fail-safe, which is Jesus, to cover up whatever God can't correct. Well said again. Absolutely. Let's jump to Thursday's lesson. See, we made it all the way to Thursday. We just had to skip a few days. <laughs> um, I'm going to go to the third paragraph first here and then come back to read another one if we have time. I'm in the right spot here. It says in the middle of that, that paragraph, yeah, it says, while we cannot go deeply into the matter here about God's wrath, we must uh, be clear that the wrath of God is not an irrational, impulsive rage. God's ways are not our ways. I, they always throw that out. They always throw that out, don't they? But notice, right after they say, God's ways aren't our ways, they make, look what they do in the very next sentence, they make God's ways our ways. This is exactly what they do. After they claim it, then they make it our ways. Listen to the next sentence. The biblical concept of wrath of God is more like a nation's need for justice in relation to lawbreakers who abuse and oppress others. Right after they say it's not God's ways aren't our ways, they make God's ways exactly like our ways. Do you see it? Well, in medicine, this is called pathognomonic. Pathognomonic, pathos means illness. Mnemonic means names it. And... The sickness, in other words, when you see, and what this means is if, if something is pathognomonic, it means that the symptom means that when you see it, you know this disease the person has. This, this, this symptom is always associated with this disease. So when you see it, you know what you got, pathognomonic. Well, this statement reveals something. It's pathognomonic. It reveals that those who wrote this operate under an imperial Rome-imposed law construct believing that God runs his universe like Rome, runs his government like human governments, imposing laws which require the ruling authority to impose penalties. 
Again, here's how our church saw it more than 100 years ago. It was out of Christ's Object Lessons, page 77. The germ in the seed grows by the unfolding of the life principle which God has implanted. In its development depends upon no human power. So it is with the kingdom of Christ. It is a new creation. Its principles of development are the opposite of those that rule the kingdoms of the world. So, so God's kingdom, opposite. Earthly governments prevail by physical force. They maintain their dominion by war. But the founder of the new kingdom is the prince of peace. The Holy Spirit represents worldly kingdoms under the symbol of fierce beasts of prey. But Christ is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. In his plan of government, there is no employment of brute force to compel the conscience. The Jews looked for the kingdom of God to be established in the same way as the kingdoms of the world. Hmm. Just the Jews? Or... The biblical concept of wrath of God is more like the nation's need for justice. The kingdoms of the world. To promote righteousness, they resorted to external measures. They devised methods and plans, but Christ implants a principle. By implanting truth and righteousness, he counterworks error and sin. You see, we have on the one hand, external power imposing coercive pressure. We have, on the other hand, an internal power transforming and healing in, tr- in the heart and mind. One operates on truth and love. One operates on threat of punishment. They're not the same God. And it all began in heaven when there was allegations made that God does not run his universe on love, but that God runs his universe on threat and in position of power. My heart cries for what's happened to Christianity. It's not isolated to our group. This is Christian-wide. It doesn't matter denomination. It's denomination. It respects no denomination. This problem that I'm I'm pointing out here is (laughs) Christianity-wide. And we are in a war for the hearts and minds of people. Has anyone as you've come to this concept of God's law of love, has anybody really experienced a freedom from something they were held in before? Have you experienced a peace and a, and a comfort with God? Have you experienced power to live a, a better life? It makes a huge difference, doesn't it? I see a lot of heads nodding. And then the, as we uh, end class today, we're going to do something very special today. Michael and Steph, would you come on up? Michael and Stephanie has asked that their little baby girl, Lennox, be dedicated to God this morning. Amen. And today I'm privileged to, to, be, uh, to partake in that. And when we dedicate to God, some people use the phrase, we're going give, to give this child back to God. And for those in the audience with children, have you ever taken the time to give your children back to God? I know some of you are thinking, I'd like to take my kids and give them back to God, but, but he wouldn't take them. <laughs> okay? The, and the truth is, there are very few parents who haven't had days or moments when they would like to take their kids and give them back to God. Um, but we're not talking about returning your kids to God and trying to get your money back. What I'm asking you is, have you ever recognized that your children are a precious responsibility from the Lord and they belong ultimately and always to God first? and not to you.
Have we realized God has left it up to us to show them his way? And there are many examples uh, in Scripture of children being returned to God. The classic, of course, is Hannah bringing Samuel, the the, the miracle child, to Eli the high priest. Of course, we have Joseph and Mary bringing Jesus uh, on the eighth day after his circumcision to Jerusalem to present to the Lord. And so Michael and Stephanie, grandparents, great-grandparents, uncles, aunts, cousins, and all the brothers and sisters in God's family. I want to share briefly with you three C's of what it means to give Lennox back to God. Giving Lennox to God is first a confirmation of your love for God. The first thing you're saying when you give Lennox back to to the Lord is simply this, that you love God even more than you love her. Lennox is your most prized possession, but don't allow her to take the place of God. Let her know you love her so much that you want the very best for her. If that means giving her discipline, setting boundaries, changing your life for her benefit, do whatever it takes to help her develop character like Jesus. Matthew 10, 37 and 38, Jesus said, Anyone who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Giving Lennox back to God is not only a confirmation, it is a commitment to raise her God's way. Ephesians 6, 4 says that we are to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. To give Lennox to God is not just a ceremony here today. It is a commitment, a commitment that you are going to be godly parents. And we're not just dedicating Lennox. We are dedicating both of you to be godly parents to Lennox. Teach Lennox of, of Christ, his character of love. Teach her God's methods and principles to love her, even if loving at times will require discipline, to pray for Lennox, to teach her to think, to reason, and discern, to make your home a holy place, to put away worldliness and live a righteous life. A baby dedication is not a magical ceremony. The ceremony we're doing today will be meaningless without parents who make a sincere, lifelong commitment to raise their child in harmony with God's principles. So giving Lennox to God is not only a confirmation, a commitment, it is a claiming of God's plan and promise for Lennox's life. Isaac inherited God's blessings and protection and promises because his dad Abraham gave him back to God, taught him the truth of God's character of love, taught him how to think and reason, and raised him in harmony with God's methods. The choices that you, Stephanie, and Michael are making today will impact Lennox. And the choices you make throughout her life will impact her. So as you dedicate her to God, you are confirming your supreme love for God, committing to raise Lennox under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and claiming God's best plan and promises for her life. And now I'd like to have the grandparents of Lennox come up. Grandparents of Lennox. Great-grandparents of Lennox come up. And if the parents would stand behind Michael and Steph and the great-grandparents behind them, and then for just a moment, all the other relatives, uncles, aunts, cousins, everybody else, just stand for a minute so everybody can see all the relatives here today. Okay? And then if you guys will put your, put your hands on their, their back, I'm going to pray for them. Give me, I'm going to take Lennox. I get the privilege of taking Lennox now. Yes. All righty. 
Let me have your hands. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you today because Stephanie and Michael are committing themselves and their daughter to be raised for your kingdom. They They are confirming their love for you, committing themselves to live in harmony with your methods, and claiming your promises for your plan for Lennox's life. And we thank you and we pray for them that you will give them wisdom, give them love, give them patience, give them endurance, give them discernment. Uh, provide for them your spirit, your transforming power, so that they will be successful in, in battling the, the evil forces that will try to, to influence them and tempt them, that ultimately their child will be raised in harmony with your methods and principles and know you as, as their friend and savior. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. All righty. Thank you, guys. And that was our prayer for closing Sabbath School, too.